Welcome to Fire Your Therapist, a podcast with a radical perspective on mental health. Here are your hosts, Carrie and Dan. Welcome to Fire Your Therapist. On today's episode, we're going to talk about how I am possibly going to help Dan without actually giving him a diagnosis first. I don't believe you. Why not? Sounds like nonsense. Uh huh. It's diag nonsense. This is uh, episode two, Dan. Uh, there we are. This is an episode fueled by one of our listeners. We got an email from Ben Lichtingshire. He's a program manager from Glide in San Francisco, and he had a really good question. He said he listened to the diag nonsense episode. And Dan, he wants us to talk about, I guess I'm thinking it's geared toward the practicalities of, okay, if I'm not going to diagnose, then how am I going to work with people? Like, what, what does that look like? Um, I don't know if you're getting the same feeling from the question. Yeah, I am. Okay, so we're, we've made a promise to the listeners that everything, every question, every article, every video that's sent our way, we're going to respond to it on air. And actually, Dan and I have a value system based around this collaboration with our listeners is that we don't want to just talk at you. We want to have a conversation with what's going on in your lives and in your practices, with your friends, family, and colleagues. So this is one of those episodes that's dedicated to that. And all of our future episodes will be um, in hopes dedicated with the same idea. So before we begin, Dan, do you mind if I throw out an incentive? No, go for it. Okay. So our future episodes are going to be fueled by listeners. So if you tweet at FYT show or you go to Facebook, which is also FYT show, and you finish, you finish this fill in the blank sentence. It's if your therapist, and then fill in if your therapist does this or says this or acts like this, right? Then you should probably hashtag fire your therapist. So if you hashtag fire your therapist, we're going to find you or you can tag us at FYT show. Top five answers are going to be featured on our next five episodes. Uh, but if you send us a, um, an article, a video, a photograph, a meme, like whatever you find interesting, you don't really have a quote, then uh, anything that piques our interest, any tweets, any posts, we're going to use them for episodes. So just fill in the blank. If you're a therapist, dot, 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 then you should probably fire your therapist. How's that sound, Dan? It sounds good. What if you are a therapist? That's going to make it so much better. Okay. If your therapist is yourself, you should probably fire your therapist. <laughs> That's <laughs> how, mine. How do you fire yourself? Next episode, dedicated to firing myself. <laughs> All right, so this episode is sort of about diagnosis, but I'm wondering if we can like, check in and then see where we go from there. Dan, are you feeling anything you want to check in about before we begin? Uh, sure. I am uh, warm, excessively warm. For those that don't know, we are in Southern California, and on top of that, I don't have air conditioning, which makes me a total wuss in Southern California because it's not that bad here, but... It's hot inside. Yeah, it kind of is. We it's also have inside. to turn off all the air conditioners and fans and things so that we get a better sound quality. So I feel like um, you're supporting our listeners by enduring the warmth. Uh, and if they support us and we get famous and make enough to have a studio, then we can have <laughs> air conditioning. This is, how, this is how you can help us, everybody. You can spread the word about our show so that we can one day afford air conditioning. And go back and listen to the Atmosphere episode, and you'll totally understand why it's necessary for you to support us in this way. It will inspire more creativity on Fire Your Therapist. Anything else? Uh, that's it for me. How about you? That's it. Um, I'm excited to be recording some more episodes with you. That's my check-in, is that uh, 
Dan and I have both been working, for those of you who don't know, we've both been working on side projects that we're very excited about. So yes, there's been a lag in the episodes. We've been getting questions about when the next episode is coming. Here it is. We're proud to present. <laughs> and uh, the reason why we're actually back recording, even though we're really busy this summer, is because we're getting feedback about you know what people want to hear. And we're hearing that people are listening in a way that, that it's being supportive to their work. And that's actually our complete aim in this. Uh, that's what I'm excited about to talk about today, responding to something that, um, that Ben brought up. And hopefully it'll be helpful um, to either his future work or anybody who's listening. Just throwing out there that this is, you know, something that's not fueled by us, but it's brought by those that are listening. So, Dan, if I don't diagnose you, then where do I even start? Well, it's a good question. And I think it's an interesting one because it presumes that there's a binary. Mm-hmm. That it's either you diagnose or you do something else. Diagnose. Is that like a, a breed of, of Clydesdale? <laughs> I love it. So, <laughs> I'm teasing you. I wanna, I wanna, if we don't diagnose, if sorry. If we don't diagnose, it implies that we must do something else. Uh-huh. And I think what I would propose is that it's more important to evaluate the purpose of diagnosis for the work we do. Mm-hmm. And instead of limit ourselves to this binary of either you diagnose and in the only way that has been presented to me, or I don't, I do something else. Mm-hmm. But instead to consider uh, that the act of diagnosis, which is really a bridge between assessment and treatment, right? It's, it's this idea of figuring out what's going on and trying to establish some uh, easily communicated shared language for what to do about it. And when we look at the DSM, which is an important, um, it's an important manual. I'm not going to pretend that it's, that it's not important because it establishes some shared language for an industry and without shared language we can't communicate effectively. So I'm not throwing it out, but um, it is sort of tunnel vision because it's all about pathology. And if your goal is happy and healthy families and communities, which I would hope most people listening to this show, that's your goal, I suspect if you don't care about family or community, you lost interest in our show a long time ago. <laughs> right. Um, but it shouldn't stop there, right? So the diagnosis joke that we always make is probably about diagnosis based solely on DSM criteria and ignoring everything else. Mm-hmm. But if you're assessing a much more comprehensive view of someone's situation, someone's family situation, community, et cetera, and uh, that a DSM diagnosis is just one piece of that, um, that's the alternative, I would say. See, like when, if and when I'm asked to diagnose for a specific reason, you know, like let's do a, a pretend case management study or something and like you need to diagnose this case. My section on, um, on psychosocial stressors is right. so extensive. It's right. like, oh, well, then I just go into the, all of the, the history and the culture and everything that is impacting this human into whatever condition they're currently found in. And I think that encompasses all of it. I, I'd rather ignore all the rest of it, except for in a few circumstances where I feel it's it's very valuable. Like before the show, Dan was talking about some you know medical reasons. Like you need to know if someone has a brain injury. You need to know if they're using substances that are altering their state of consciousness so that who you're talking to right now, you know, is influenced by something. But those are all part of your, your context. Right. And they're all part of your, you know, culture or circumstances, experiences that you've gone through. 
So is the name important? Um, I want to respond to what you were just saying, but I also want to put out there that when you say shared language, I think about uh, an insurance company needing to communicate with me about a client that I might be seeing, and they need like this really, really short version of what's going on so that they can decide how they're going to support me financially or my practice or my community mental health center. And I'm supporting them back by letting them know about how many sessions I think this person requires. Now, my bias is every person on earth needs an unlimited amount of sessions. And I I can't possibly say, you know, how many you're going to need. And even if I diagnose you, I would never limit it because I feel like that's not a choice that a therapist should ever make. And it's certainly not a choice that an insurance company should ever make. If you need support, you need support. Um, But an ethical therapist is going to help their client reach for supports that don't only, you know, look like psychotherapy. They're going to look like many, many things. And at, at some point, psychotherapy can co- become irrelevant in their life, and that's great, you know, if, if that's not a support that's necessary to, like, you know, continue, them, uh, continue to support them in a healthy lifestyle. But when you said shared language, I thought about that. I thought about therapists talking to insurance companies and vice versa. But other than that, shared language between therapist and client I don't know if any name or label for something has ever been useful in my work. I've heard, I've had clients come in self-diagnosing themselves or they brought a label that they got from a prior therapist. And it it seems so um, ingrained at that point that it, it it offers a conversation that is very one-sided, like me saying, how do you find that useful? And then wanting to hold onto it with all of their might saying like, this is who I am. And then change is very difficult in that. But Shared language, before we go to like what you were going to talk about as well, Dan, um, shared language to me is also what I call culture. So when a group of people come together, maybe it's just a family, maybe it's a people coming together around any sort of community event or um, a neighborhood or, you know, any, anything that you consider culture, you start to develop meaning around things together mm-hmm. and you, you make these words that label the things that you're doing together. And um, where you and I train, Dan, at the Relational Center, we have this language that we use around our work, and it's actually radically different than most psychotherapy language. So it makes me think about the culture of psychotherapy has this diagnosing language, and our culture uses this language as a shorthand for what we mean. You know, when I say this client has manic episodes, you kind of get the gist of what I mean. But mania in outside of psychotherapy means something else. So the shorthand could be useful. Um, but that culture was not developed by my generation. It wasn't developed by the psychotherapists that are working today. It was developed a very long time ago. And I don't know how useful a lot of it is now. So I guess that's something I want to come back to later if you have thoughts on it, Dan. Is like the culture that we're participating in requires the culture requires us to change our language into something that isn't organically you know coming out of our mouths like we're not walking around necessarily trying to decide like what to call you Dan or what to call this client or right we're actually being asked to participate in this structure that was already enforced and I don't know how natural that feels to us yeah well I'm glad you're highlighting um the idea of shared language and of culture because the thing that's really easy to point out is that 
the language of the DSM, sort of as you said, is not shared by most clients. Some of them know the language of their own diagnosis or are familiar with it, um, but it's actually a very exclusive language. So it might facilitate a lot of communication between clinicians, but it guarantees that um, clients are disempowered and left out of that process. Right. So uh, a lot of what, and I think one of Ben's explicit questions was, what do you do at the relational center that's, that's the alternative to this? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer to that is um, that we construct diagnosis out of the language um, that is shared between client and therapist, which usually means it's language shared between that client and their whole community, their relationships, their history, their family. Uh, and we tie it to things that are tangible for everybody, right? Tie it to things like family structure, tie it to things like a uh, sense of identity, tie it to things like uh, interests and strengths, tie it to things like um, communities they participate in, tie it to things like where they live, what their work is, things that are more tangible, mm-hmm. right? And I think as much as we all know, oh, that's the content of all psychotherapy, uh, I think a lot of traditional models will take that information down as if it's sort of the sidebar content that you keep track of while you do the real thing, which is identify their pathology and try to tweak it. The real thing, though, right. is so so simplifying, and it and it tends to ignore so many things. Absolutely, and and the biggest problem in that is that it then decontextualizes those features, and right. you think you can fix them without working with the context also. Mm-hmm. So when you create a shared uh, a culture of a shared language about what you're doing, then suddenly experiments in no so- new social contexts is the intervention, and you can use exactly those words both with your colleagues and your supervisor and with your client, and you'll all know what you're talking about. Can you say that again? Experiments in new social contexts? Sure. I was just, that- I was just giving mm-hmm. one example of, let's say somebody's very isolated, mm-hmm. right? And maybe you've already spent a few months talking about, just to throw out some more examples, talking about like self-regulation and coping skills and you know uh, things that have terms for them that are easily understood outside of just DSM lingo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe you get to an experiment of, okay, let's find new social contexts to connect with. Who knows what that is? Maybe it's a book club or a meetup group or going back to school or, mm-hmm. I mean, those are kind of silly examples, but who knows what it is. Um, but nobody is left out of that language. Hey, we're going to experiment with some new social contexts. Right. And I like the experimental part of that because you can, I, I, I've had clients come and say, I have this problem. I really want to you know, be alone all the time. I'd love to have friendships. I don't know how to make them. LA is so difficult to do that. And everybody is isolated in their own way. It's hard to engage. And, um, that LA is a little, you know, sidebar. This is LA is a place where people are taught to isolate so well, but above and beyond that, even if we come up with an experiment where my client who's feeling isolated takes a, you know, a risk and they go out and join a book club or they join a hiking group, and they're trying to engage with other people, um, that can fail miserably <laughs> every time. If we're not addressing, you know, how do we get to this place of isolation and, and what supports do you have to engage with other people? So when you're coming to therapy and you're interacting with someone and you're practicing engagement, that in itself is now cult- you're cultivating a lived experience with your therapist of what it's like to not be isolated, mm-hmm. right? You're practicing engagement. And 
um, you're trying new experiments in how to talk to one another or explain a shared experience that you're actually having in the moment. Um, but the experimentation of that is like, okay, yeah, you, you don't want to be isolated. You want to try a book club. All right. So maybe the intervention is not, and I want to be like really clear about this, Dan, and to anybody that's listening, like maybe the experiment is not go join a book club. The experiment is sure. Try a book club. And then we're going to talk about what that was like. And that's the intervention. Right. Is the, right. The discussion about what it's like to try to escape the isolation. What is it like to, you know, join a group of people and now you're exposed to like-minded people that may share values or cultural instincts, but, um, you know, they're all strangers to you. And what's it like coming into a group like that? Or, um, you know, do you want to isolate further now that you've done that? Right. But it's like, it's the monitoring the process. And I feel like that person could have been diagnosed with anything. And it's really the process that's important. And it's the experimentation that's important. And you start to discover things that diagnoses could never point you to. Right. Well, it's, <clears throat> it draws a clear line in the sand between um, deficit-based perspectives and strength-based. Yeah, that's because true. Because if you're, if you're strength-based, then what you just described, you will recruit your client into managing that project. And notice my language I'm using on purpose. Uh-huh. as language that I would use with a client, right? Right. So the questions you were asking, uh, what was that like to go to that book club? How did you feel? What strengths did you bring forward? How did you manage your anxiety? Like suddenly they are managing the project with you mm-hmm. and you're not having to go then secretly behind the curtain and write some notes about how that actually influenced their real pathology. That's the more important thing than the actual work you did with them. Right. Which so- again takes you back into that language that they're left out of. Well, there's this trap that um, brand new MFT or, or social worker trainees fall into, right? I have this client, they're very isolated, their story is so sad. I feel so bad that they have no one to interact with. I happen to know this website called Meetup or <laughs> I know this local book club and I connected them to these resources, which is coming from a place that, um, you know, you want to support this experience for this person and you may be the only person they're interacting with. Maybe they didn't know about these resources. So you're trying to do your part in that way. But there's this trap where that you know this person who's coming to you has tried many different things. They've tried engaging before. And instead of fixing the engage, you know, the f- filling that void right away um, and trying to get away from that isolation or whatever the issue might be, you're actually setting yourself up for the possibility that you're saying, well, here's my intervention, do it. And if there's no follow-up about the process and they go and they try the intervention, they join the book club, they have a horrible experience. Heaven forbid they get re-traumatized by whatever they, you know, decide to take a risk on and they do it at their therapist's advice. Not only are you in a place of feeling like I may not see that client again, but you have this possibility of them coming back and having it now there's this new part of the relationship where you tell me to do things and I do them and when they don't work then we try something else it's not collaborative right and diagnosing's never collaborative unless you literally bring the DSM to your into your session which I have to admit I've done once because there was there was someone so insistent on having a name for what they were going through I said well let's just figure this out together yeah so what did you do when you brought a DSM in I actually uh, would bring a DSM into most assessments really yeah, I would only not do that if I, if I think it would clinically harm the person. But unless there is an obvious harm, I won't diagnose without the collaboration. You bring it into a first session? 
No, probably not a first session. Do you only bring it in if they ask? Yeah, if they need a full diagnosis for some reason. Oh, to submit okay. To insurance or so they've requested. Yeah. Oh, I thought you just brought into your first session, and I was no. like, well, there's there's a little signal no. <laughs> of how this is gonna go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's two things I wanna I wanna throw out and add to this mm-hmm. um, because we're getting short on time. Um, one is that the DSM really, and and I, I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but it's really based around triage. Right. It's kind of, you're trying to find things that have already gone horribly wrong, right? It's like diagnosing like broken mm-hmm. bones and stab wounds, right? Like the damage has already happened and we've all struggled. We've all faced challenges, but um, that's a very limited view. And I think to treat the DSM as the primary and only way we diagnose what we're going to work on is basically like saying, okay, you, you came to the emergency room. We're going to stop the bleeding slap some band-aids on and send you out the door and say, you should be fine. And I don't know about most of our listeners, but I don't think that's good enough. Right. I, I, I would even go so far as to say ethically, we have a responsibility to go many steps further and be actually proactively creating healthy families and communities and sustainable relationships, not just, okay, you're not really suffering as much anymore. You know, mediocre is good. See you later. Mm-hmm. So the other thing I wanted to mention before we uh, check out is um, that there's a fundamental belief difference, I think, in doing psychotherapy where you start with the DSM versus start with a broader context. You were talking about how your access for your Mm -hmm. psychosocial Mm -hmm. was so comprehensive and we can't even call it access anymore because with the DSM-5, there's there's no more axes. But... um, and in the model that we're trained in and that I wholeheartedly believe in, we're actually targeting the context right? just as much as the individual. And the DSM doesn't have anything in it for assessing the context and making plans for changing the context. Um, so therein lies a big problem. If the thing you think is going to support someone to be the healthiest and happiest isn't in your book of diagnosis, you're going to need to augment that. You're going to need to get some training somewhere that stretches your skill set to include a broader assessment, treatment planning, et cetera. Right. I think the point you're making now, Dan, is really important for people that are working in communities that are incredibly diverse, incredibly marginalized. Um, I don't know, you know, I don't know a more diverse place that's coming right to mind other than Los Angeles, San Francisco, big cities where people are traveling to come and um, they have such a rich history of diversity behind them. And, they're also coming into contact with so many multicultural views in their day to day. And that's where a lot of people are feeling distress is when there's cross-cultural conflict. I mean, it's one of the hardest because we have this shared set of values and, and meanings and beliefs about what things are. Now take that person and move them to another country and see how much they have in common with other people. See how many people they're really able to connect with. You know, if you don't have a flexibility, but you have more of a rigid mindset, like you're going to right. start experiencing well, stress right away. Well, that's also highlighting that the DSM, I mean, I don't know what to what degree this is as true as it was years ago, but is pretty calibrated and normed right. culturally. Right. So Who wrote it and who did they write it for? Is that what you're right. saying? Right. And so if you ask yeah. the question, is somebody's um, emotional process, behavior, et cetera, et cetera, healthy and sustainable for their cultural context... That's a more complex question than what do they fit into in the DSM. But anyway, I interrupted you. Nope, that's all I had to say. I was going to check out if you're ready to check yeah, out. Yeah, go ahead and check out. Um, I have two things I want to check out with. 
to keep this episode short and sweet is I started with talking about, um, you know, the mental health field is having shared languages. I was bouncing off of what you said, Dan, and I link that to culture. So we already have, you know, all of us that are entering into this field or all of us are just interested in talking to our family and friends about their, you know, mental state or their emotional state is we already have this culture that was predetermined that we are stepping into and it's called psychotherapy, mental health, social work, whatever it may be. And it has this, this shared language that's pre-established. And so we have this opportunity we can step into that and accept the, the wording, the terms, the norms, which is what we're sort of forced to do when we go to school and we have instructors that are teaching us how to do this properly. We go to a mental health center to get our supervision hours and our supervisors are teaching us the, the right way and the wrong way. If they're very oppressive, then that might be how it turns out. Um, so there's this predetermined culture and we have the opportunity to step in and use all that language and, and use those techniques and those methods, right, to do this work. Uh, but I actually propose that we establish a new culture uh, that is based on what people are actually asking for now. And it's not based in the DSM. It's not based in, in labeling anything. Um, but it's looking at what's going on and how can we support it to be different if we need it to be, you know, and how can it be sustainably changed. But having a new culture of truly mutual support where people are supporting each other to have a sustainable life that is healthy and, you know, engaging and meeting our needs and helping us live happier, healthier lives. Right. But as I say that, I know I've had a lived experience of going through schooling and training where as much as my, you know, heart tells me that I don't want to diagnose you, I don't want to judge you like that, I don't want to um, take my first 30 minutes of knowing you and decide who you are in a nutshell... I know that practitioners are forced to do this and that they must name what's going on in the room in a very short amount of time. I don't know if our listener who, who proposed us talking about this topic, I don't know if Ben's been in this situation. I imagine that he may have been um, where he has to diagnose right away. And what he's writing in his case study or what have you is determined by a stakeholder that is paying his paycheck or paying the company that he's working for. So there's maybe an insurance company somewhere that has decided like you have to do this oppressive thing. And so I, my heart goes out to people that are in that situation because it's icky and it doesn't feel right. And, it, and if you sense like something's wrong with it, that's okay. We're here to support you and say <laughs> it's not really all that ethical. Um, but sometimes it's the only way that people can get mental health support. So sometimes we have to play that game and it, and it doesn't feel good. However, if I'm ever forced in that context to, to do that, like I have to give a diagnosis, Dan, as you were saying you do, um, you can have a conversation about it. Like, I'm really sorry. I, I know in order for you to get services, I have to diagnose you with something. Why don't we do this collaboratively? I mean, that's my most relational way possible of doing, you know, this necessary evil, right? And saying, well, why don't we look through this DSM together? And do you agree that this is what you're going through? And if, and I want you to know the repercussions of if I label you this thing and I report it to your insurance company, they're going to tell me how many sessions you get. And, you know, how collaborative can you really get? And how can you really break down this culture and say, I didn't make this. And, and I know you probably have an idea of wh who I am because I'm wearing this title of therapist. But, you know, mm -hmm. if my therapist oppressively labeled me, I would probably fire them. 
But um ching. That's my checkout. Do you have anything you want to check out with Dan? Yeah. Um, I just want to say uh, thanks to Ben for emailing us. We really wanted our show to be a, a, a larger dialogue, and it's so great to have somebody weigh in with a, a question or something they want to hear more about. Um, so please, more of that. Anybody listening that has things they want to hear us talk about or questions they want to ask us, and if you record the audio of your question and send it in, we can try to include it on the show. Absolutely. You can uh, take a video of yourself on your smartphone or your tablet and you can post on our Facebook page and we will include the audio in the episode. We'll respond to it. Like I said earlier on the show, I'm just going to like reiterate it. Is that okay, Dan? So future episodes are going to be fueled by the listeners. Tweet us at FYT show. So take out your smartphone as you're listening to my voice right now. Tweet us at FYT show and finish the sentence. If your therapist, fill in the blank, then you should probably hashtag fire your therapist. Um, top five answers are going to be the next five episodes, and anything that piques our interest, we're going to include all of it. So thanks for listening. And you can follow us on Twitter at FYT Show, and you can like us on Facebook, uh, FYT Show, and email us at feedback at fireyourtherapistshow.com. Thank you all for listening. Fire Your Therapist was produced by Yumi Media. Subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes or go to fireyourtherapistshow.com where you can find podcasts, resources, and more.